Welcome to Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the challenges and opportunities facing the global food supply chain and speak with experts working to support a planet of plenty. What is the future of the agriculture industry once the world has emerged from the coronavirus pandemic? What should farmers and producers be thinking about now as they plan for post-pandemic success? We're taking these questions to risk management consultant Joe Kern, joining us from Ames, Iowa. Joe and his team at Kearns & Associates work with livestock producers and suppliers in 13 states. The clients include packers, producers, veterinarians, researchers, mill operators, and feed ingredient suppliers. Joe, thanks for joining us. I'm wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. And what a year it's been, Joe. What what makes your short list of trends and dynamics that you've been watching as agriculture has navigated this pandemic? Well, some of the things, and I think this is kind of important, is to segregate out what was going to be a trend versus what are the shock waves that were sent through the market. And and uh, we have a tendency to, to lump all those together when there's an acute issue. And so uh, uh, a, a few of them that I think that we can start to identify uh, that are directly impacting by the pandemic are lack of travel, uh, it, you know, is a for instance. Uh, the, certainly that uh, fuel consumption is down, which impacts agriculture with the uh, lack of ethanol demand. Uh, it also puts uh, fewer DDGs onto the market. And so there's some unintended consequences that are, that are kind of the substrates of the, uh, of the initial event that I think are perhaps uh, the most interesting here, uh, whether it's th- that if you're working from home, uh, that we more more than likely probably would not have been. Uh, but even a ghost kitchen is, is perhaps a trend that was already going to establish itself, and then uh, you know hits kind of the the turbocharger in a pandemic environment. It's it's made for some very interesting dynamics. Well, Joe, I'd like to read something from your website, and and then we can talk about it. Um, you write. The turning of the calendar is the traditional time to take an inventory of your personal situation and commit to steering in another direction if you so choose. Statistics show, however, that you'll probably revert back to the same old habits before February. Change can be hard. Indeed, it can. But have the economic shocks of the pandemic brought about any long-term changes that need to be recognized? Uh, uh, Absolutely. Uh, and, and certainly, I would call uh, a shift toward even environmental stewardship. Um, the the pandemic, in in another, I think, ancillary form, has uh, brought together some of the uh, political unrest that we've seen. Is uh, as folk have stayed home more. Uh, I think we've got an acute situation that we're dealing with in a congressional issue uh, that's brought through funding, it's brought through some economic strife, and it's turned the political thing, it's turned up the heat. And our fissures in society uh, are, are more exposed. I think that uh, that once these things are exposed, the genie doesn't go back in the bottle uh, very well. Kind of even what you wrote uh, had kind of a qualifier in there that we can change if we choose, but it is our choice. So some things are foist upon us and other things are our choosing. And, and I think what I was really getting at probably in that article uh, was dealing with New Year's resolution specifically. And everybody has, you know, I'm going to eat better. I'm going to, I'm going to lose weight. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, but unless we say I'm going to run a 10K in less than 40 minutes, those, those are specific deliverables uh, that I think are the, are the ones that we need to choose, not the vague 
uh, uh, type of generalities that aren't so inflection performing. Well, speaking of New Year's resolutions, you also wrote near the end of 2020 that there's nothing inherently wrong with New Year's resolutions if they are bends in behavior and not wholesale changes unlikely to stick. And it sounds like, uh, to me anyway, that you're suggesting that it's better to make modest, moderate changes than to go off in an entirely new direction. I- am I reading you right there? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. The the radical seldom uh, works. Uh you know, what, whatever you see in yourself or in others as a trait that needs to be changed, uh, making, making a polar opposite uh, is rarely successful. It's just it puts too much stress on the rest of our systems. We're, we're dynamic beings, and more than likely, uh, the, the item that you identify is connected to a lot more behaviors. And, and so, therefore, uh, having a complete denial of all the desserts probably is, is a little too radical. Uh, having them once a week is, is, a, is perhaps a more realistic metaphor. Uh, and I think even in our businesses that we've got to recognize the same, uh, that, that if we're referencing the pandemic, that it is imposed onto us some very, very acute dynamics. They might be financial, um, they, they might be employment-wise, uh, that even our asset base uh, is gone underutilized. You know, uh, thank goodness uh, I, I don't own uh, any hotels or, or any uh, commercial buildings, per se, because I do think some of the long-term changes that we're going to see in society are going to render those to be of less value than they were prior to the pandemic coming. So uh, kind of keeping with that theme, uh, if we get to choose them, and, and, and certainly the resolution component is self-imposed, is bends work a lot better than 90-degree angles or about faces. Well, uh, we're talking about change, and uh, we can be stuck in our ways. Uh, but I wonder if it's really important to think about that and to try to be more agile in these times to to come out of the pandemic successfully. And what does that agility look like? Well, certainly, I think, you know, the, the first rules of business are don't run out of cash. And if we say that three times, that's kind of you could write a book about that. Uh, and, and I do think that uh, having liquidity and solvency is the first key component. Uh, the second would be, you know, the, the frank assessment of any fixed assets that you have and what their shelf life is in a current industry, whether it's uh, within agriculture, uh, that if I've got a pig barn, can it be converted and utilized to something else? And if so, uh, what is the net present value of that asset? And so uh, I am personally uh, a fan of not owning a whole lot of fixed assets. Uh, that, that I do think our society is also moving that direction. I am not a millennial generation, but, uh, but the millennials, I think, have taught us something uh, that they would rather rent than own in many different cases. And that does add a level of agility uh, that until we get, uh, get things kind of sorted out and our oscillation decreases a little bit so we've got more confidence in our decision-making, it is important just to, just to be a, a little lighter on our feet and less encumbered uh, perhaps with physical assets than, than at other times it might warrant those in an inflationary environment, which all the, I also think is coming, by the way. Let's, uh, let's kind of riff on that rental idea, because I, I agree with you that it seems to be really catching on. And I wonder if it, it could be seen as kind of a win-win situation, since uh, you're not saddled with maintaining all of that gear, all that equipment, but at the same time, somebody else is given the business. Yeah, and let's, uh, 
the, the, the win-win has got to be a fair return toward the, the equity holder. And when we were in a zero interest rate environment, that's probably very difficult. And, and again, getting back to the political uh, scenario that we're, that we're coming on with uh, a little bit more debt, uh, the changes in the Georgia race that, that more than likely are going to allow uh, a, a few more progressive programs to roll through that, uh, that will inevitably uh, increase our tax base, perhaps lead into some inflation, is uh, that, the, that there's a secondary alternative for money. Look at the stock market. We were, what, 31,000. I don't know what it did today. I think it was up a little bit also. But the Dow Jones is also giving us a very clear indication that there's more to an alternative than, than money sitting on the sidelines. And, and uh, uh, the type of scenario that I think we're going to be in for at least the next two and more than likely the next four years is going to be one of alternative value, bringing money off of the sidelines and making it work. We're going to punish the savers uh, as a society. And so from an agricultural standpoint, I, I believe what that means is that rent rates are going to have to move higher in order to compensate uh, the, the next best alternative for the, for the uh, uh, allocation of funds. And so what was an easy scenario in a zero inflation rate environment to say, why would I want to own it? I can just rent it. I do believe that those dynamics are going to change, uh, but we also have generational changes that are overlaying. So it's almost like waves that are coming together and, and you're trying to decide which one's going to be the dominant force or are they going to conjoin to really uh, you know, bring some kinetic energy into a program. What are some key markers in the market uh, that you're watching for as risk management decisions are being considered and, and made? Well, certainly profit margins. I think that's where we've got to start from a, from a, a sound economic base. Uh, if I'm making decisions uh, that, that are leading to profits to my operation, and again, this becomes back to the uh, what is the return on my asset base? And am I better off selling it and, and uh, uh, doing something else with my money? Uh, we in agriculture tend to look at these things with, with our hearts a little bit more than our heads at times. And I think that's one of the beauties of agriculture is we're not, uh, we're, we're not just complacent and cold, steely uh, players on a monopoly board where we don't care what we get. We care. You know, it's the motto of the entire pork industry. Um, and so I think that uh, uh, certainly the profit margins and then, uh, you know, kind of reverting back to something we talked about earlier was segregating out what are the short term changes versus the long term changes and how do I position my operation and am I willing uh, to, to ride out a storm if that's what I'm looking at? And are there alternatives? And, I, and I'll give you just a brief example. Uh, the financing alternative is uh, we in the United States uh, have a very robust of a farm credit system and also private lending system to access funds. Not everybody has that. If you, uh, if you spend any time in China, it's either going to be private equity or, or you're going to become a state-owned enterprise. Those are, those are really your two choices. There is no farm credit system inside of China. And so in addition uh, to what we already have as financing arms, uh, we're also starting to get a little bit more creative, uh, the over-the-counter market. Uh, uh, some non-traditional uh, sources of capital are coming to agriculture. And I think as long as we are open uh, to the consideration and not say, I'm going to do business with this bank because my grandpa did business with the bank, they're, they're, we're, we're going to be better off. There are going to be wonderful financial opportunities that come at us that, that more than likely have a few pitfalls, uh, but I'm very optimistic of, of our ability and something else we talked about, our agility in our ability to adjust. 
Uh, Joe, there were errors in the June hogs and pig report back uh, when COVID was forcing plant closures. And then again in September, mistakes were made. Is the industry now stabilizing? And was that indicated in the December report? I, I still think we're on a little bit of a wobble. I think it's easy to look at the USDA in the September and the and June report and go, oh, my goodness, they were wrong. And they were. Uh, but they, they had an impossible task at, at their avail. Uh, the, the, the COVID with the backup of the animals and, and the suppression of, of plant lines uh, meant that we had to make some very difficult decisions on the farm and decisions that nobody wanted to talk about nor publicize for obvious reasons. Uh, because of that, there, there was no way that we were going to, quote, find where, where are the missing animals on the farm? Where do they go? And so to, to place any reliance on those reports was probably a little bit of a misgiving to begin with. Uh, but but uh, we were looking for anything to glob onto. And, and the USDA comes out every quarter uh, with a hogs and pigs report. And traditionally, we've been able to kind of hang our hat on those to some degree of confidence. And we were looking for that. In our floundering, we're saying, finally, I get something to, to, to hold on to with, without you know, the, the recognition perhaps fully that it was not moored to anything either. It was floating along with us. The September report uh, completely overstated the heavy weight category. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. We would have been in a world of hurt otherwise. Uh, the current report also indicates that we've got some heavyweight animals uh, that might be a little suppressive to the market. And I believe uh, that by the time we're said and done, we're going to find out that that wasn't quite accurate either. Now, our oscillations are lessening. And so whatever deviation that we might have isn't as bad as the previous report. So I do think that we're starting to get back onto some solid footing. Uh, I would take a look at the uh, the March hogs and pigs report as being kind of the uh, the finally where we can put a stake in the ground and say, okay, I can lean against this one. Okay, let's turn to grains. You've expressed concern yeah. that uh, pork producers may have a difficult time sourcing soybean meal in the summer unless something changes radically in the South American weather forecast. First, tell us about that forecast. Well, the, the, the forecast has been uh, a one of a, a La Nina scenario that has uh, traditionally hampered the production inside of South America. Uh, we've got two different pieces here moving at the same time. So one is what is our South America forecast and, and what do world supplies look at? The second one is being, has the United States been leaned on just a little too long uh, in order to supply product to the world? And now we are going to short ourselves. And that's, that's uh, I think, a very real uh, scenario. So it's not only quantity, it's also timing. Uh, so the, the, the Brazilian crop did not get in early. Uh, we need the Brazilians to perform as far as uh, supplying crop to the world. And, and it starts in earnest in the next 30 days or so. Uh, traditionally, and I have no reason to think it's going to be much different. Uh, but the United States has been uh, the supplier of choice uh, to the world. China's appetite has been voracious. And uh, we are, I think we've got a very real risk of a repeat of a scenario that we saw in 2013, where the only way that a producer was to, to, was to receive soybean meal was to deliver a load of soybeans to the plant. And so it, I think we are uh, perhaps as acute uh, of a scenario as we were back in 2013. And that will tease itself out. We've got a, a report coming out on uh, January 12th, that'll get us final production for 2020, as well as a stocks report. And of the two of them, strangely enough, 
if you only gave me one, I'd take the stocks report. Let's figure out where the supplies are and let's figure out if we've got enough time in order to parse those out until we can get to our next harvest. Well, what would be the consequences if the U.S. is pressed to supply a larger than expected portion of the world's soybeans? Well, the the consequence is that we physically run ourselves out. It's uh, uh, that if I gave you a half a tank of fuel and said, now, if you drive it at 50 miles an hour, you you can make it and you go 50. I'm just going to put my foot to the floor and 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 you'll you'll make it three quarters of the way there and the tank runs dry. And and that's kind of the analogy that we're on right now is we've had our foot to the floor, not only supplying the crush industry for domestic use, but also we've been exporting the living daylights out of beans and figuring that we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Uh, And and, uh, I I think that we are on a collision course with reality, uh, especially if we see more world demand, uh, margins are offered. We live in a free market economy. We can do whatever we want. We don't have to plan. uh, uh, That's the job of the market is to move prices to a level that ration uh, the disappearance. And that's that's what we call demand. Uh, so that's the, the job of the market, not of any one central government agency. And I think that's the beauty of what we have in agriculture. Joe, you've also raised the concern that an acreage battle is brewing as we come into spring. Tell us about that. Sure. Uh, more than likely, we're going to be adding someplace in the neighborhood of uh, 8 million acres to our uh, primary crops, corn and soybeans. Uh, that if the pricing relationship remains where it is right now, our internal models would say that uh, of those uh, seven or eight million acres, the lion's share are going to go to beans and corn is going to uh, have a difficult time just holding serve. And that's because the soy market has been the leader so far in new crop soybeans, just the relationship that if you use a traditional uh, 2.3 to one relationship and, and take it at uh, $11 and 50 cent November beans and say, well, what does corn need to trade out? You're going to find out it's five dollars uh, to, to to make all those ratios start to come together. And when corn's trading at uh, four dollars and thirty five cents or so in the December, we've got some ground to make up. We've got some ground to make up between now and our planting decisions in order to encourage those acres so we so we don't find ourselves in a stress situation in 2021 with corn. We're already there with soybeans. We're going to, we're going to be in a strain in 2021 uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the use year. Uh, the job of the market is going to be to encourage enough acres to make sure that 2022 doesn't look the same for corn. And uh, uh, the exports, the, the feeding demand, but more importantly, it's, it's the acres that we put into the ground and then the subsequent yield. You have described an ominous situation in hog futures, the case of the shrinking open interest. Can you elaborate on that and why why ominous? Oh, well, so the, the ominous part of it is uh, as pork producers, uh, if we wish to hedge, and that is to sell the market, you've got to have uh, a party willing to, to offset that hedge, i.e. a buyer. Uh, and when the funds are not participatory, especially getting off some hedges into uh, six, eight, ten months forward can be difficult. Uh, we, we tend to have uh, a lot of activity in the market in the front months, but the back months where uh, forward-looking risk management might be prudent, uh, the lack of fund participation does cause a very, very real concern. Uh, uh, here, I, I'm happy to report in the last two weeks, 
We have seen the funds finally starting to participate. They've uh, uh, they've come through in spades so far in the wheat market, then in the soy complex, and more recently the corn. But the livestock side of it has has been kind of uh, almost forgotten in this uh, go go buy scenario. And so uh, the the lack of uh, of participants in the market. Uh, not everybody thinks like us, and that's a good thing because we have to have somebody take the other side of our trades. A little bit ago, you uh, touched on the new administration in Washington, and uh, I'd like to kind of elaborate on one thing regarding it, and that is that the Biden administration has inherited the Trump administration's trade and foreign policies, China. What now happens between the U.S. and China? I suspect uh, that, uh, that we're going to start off with perhaps no no change whatsoever. Uh, the phase one commitments that were negotiated uh, more than likely had enough economic parameters, i.e. China needed our stuff, whether it's soy or, or hogs, given their ASF uh, position, that, uh, that the buying was going to occur with or without an agreement. Uh, I do believe a uh, uh, perhaps more uh, tender approach and respectful approach to the Chinese situation by the next administration uh, could certainly yield uh, more opportunities for agriculture, more opportunities for commerce uh, that would flow back and forth, uh, uh, more of a dovish approach rather than the, uh, the the hawkish negotiating style that we had engaged in. Um, and I'm not saying it was all bad uh, for, for the United States, is, is perhaps the telecommunication component and, and some of the uh, uh, national security pieces uh, perhaps were uh, of benefit. Uh, agriculture, in my opinion, was harmed, it was kind of the uh, uh, the tail of the dog when it came to the negotiating table. Uh, we recently had uh, uh, an episode where we had a, an in-person visit with Greg Dowd and, and all of us in agriculture need to thank that gentleman for his participation in bringing uh, our interest to the, to the negotiating table and putting the provisions in that has allowed us to kind of enjoy some of this largesse that's been flowing through right now. But I, I suspect that the next administration uh, could even be more successful now that we've laid the groundwork and perhaps if agriculture uh, takes a more uh, a front seat, if you will, in the negotiations, in, in attempting to help the Chinese people bridge uh, some of the difficulty that they've had uh, with the ASF and other, uh, other production difficulties, uh, that we could see a win-win scenario. And that's something uh, that for the last four years, I don't think has been the goal. It's, uh, if, if you win, that's okay, but I'm going to make sure that I win seems to have been a more prevalent attitude. Any other signals that you're now reading or watching for as our economy continues to weather this pandemic and undergo the changes that come with shifting political winds in Washington? Uh, certainly inflation is probably my biggest concern, and that is a, a double-edged sword. Uh, we, we are going to encourage money out of passbook savings. Uh, savers, I think, will be uh, uh, not as well rewarded. Uh, and, and if you take a look at uh, some of our uh, folks living on a fixed income, this is kind of a dichotomy. Is we, we might be hurting uh, the older generation uh, that, uh, that traditionally our policies in, in, a, in a, a democratic uh, type of approach would say that we're going to be a bit more protective of, of whether it's uh, the geriatric community and or the environment and, and the economic uh, policy, I don't think is going to be supportive of those living on a fixed income. Uh, conversely, it's somebody's going to have to pay for this debt, and, and uh, uh, the the tax the rich 
piece is very, very difficult. And, and the next generation is more likely, more than likely going to carry much of the burden. So inflationary pressures, I think, are uh, uh, um, one of my main concerns that we've got rolling forward here, uh, keeping the political tensions at bay. Uh, understand that, that as Americans, we all have a vested interest. And, and you know, if you've traveled abroad whatsoever, uh, there's a feeling when you come back to the United States and make it through the customs and uh, uh, that you're you're happy to be home. Because with all of our warts and our scars, there's still no place I'd rather be. There, there's some beautiful areas of the world, uh, but from a, uh, an opportunity standpoint and a, and a safety standpoint, we still are the greatest nation. And I, I still hold out hope every day that we're going to survive, uh, not only survive, but also thrive as a nation. I certainly can't disagree with that, Joe. Risk Management Consultant Joe Kearns joining us from Ames, Iowa. We thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. Join us for the rest of this series as we reflect on how the agriculture industry adapted in 2020 and speak with experts on what's in store for agri-food in 2021. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Ag Future wherever you listen to podcasts.